Hey, Bobby McGee, how are you today, brother? I am good, Matt. How are you? Good to see you again. Good to see you too. You know, this is a little bit off the cuff, but it happens to be 4th of July weekend, and I know this will be a little bit outdated by the time we talk, but we, yesterday as a family, went up to the top of a building, and we were discussing this just before the podcast. I thought it'd be fun to to have this little explanation about how we how we change the way that we feel and, and see things and how we process things. But I was telling you that I never really felt like I was scared of heights. I used to actually do some roofing when I was younger, and I've, I've kind of always been okay with it. And last night we went to the top of this building to see the fireworks better. And it was, it was amazing. But at the same time, the entire time I was kind of freaked out in my head about the, the top of the building and the height we're at. And I had my daughter and a couple of her cousins with us. And I was telling you, like, for some reason, I had this weird vision in my mind about how some crazy person would come up and like, you know, pick the kid up and, and throw him off the building, which is horrible. And I was saying like, why am I even thinking this way? And why am I all of a sudden now like freaked out over heights? And then you, as you always do, the philosopher over there gave me the exact right reason. And I promise you guys listening, this this will help you. I think it certainly helped me. But Bobby, what did you tell me about my process there? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting story. I, I actually wrote about it in my first book, Magical Running, right? That we, that we are always in some different phase in our lives with all the things that we are doing, right? And those four phases being, you know, the, the phase of the athlete, uh, the phase of the warrior, the, the phase of the elder statesman, and then the phase of the spirit, right? And uh, we know with the development, uh, the, the slow development of, of the prefrontal cortex and the tendency of, of young, uh, you know, young males, young females even to you know, think, think with their, with their emotional mind, their amygdala, right? And so you're thinking about the thrill when you're that age and it's just exciting. And all you're seeing is the wonder of the situation. But by the time you get to our age, right, have children, that kind of thing, responsible for taxes and, and all that sort of thing. We'd now you learn to use other parts of our brain. And so we are aware of dangers and stuff like that, right? So on the roof there with, with, with close family around, right, you're now taken on the role of protector, of elder statesman. You're looking out for other people. Your experience is important to you. You even have the thought, I want to see what's going on around me, but primarily you're paying attention that in case somebody does something stupid, you're going to be ready to help them, right? And you were speaking about holding on to their shirts and, and, and things like that. And I, I had a similar experience at a, at a Billie Eilish concert, right, where the railing was shin high, and there were all these 12 and 13-year-old girls leaping up and down and, and a 60-foot drop just right in front of us, right? Anybody could have gone down. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm just, just waiting for somebody to go, I'm going to grab, you know? So it's, it's, an, it's a natural part of, of where our attention lies, where, you know, where our focus is and the role that we see ourselves in that situation. We assume a role the minute you show up on the roof, Right. Uh, you're not just there for the fun and the view and everything like that. And just as a last thing, uh, when I first came to the U.S. Uh, in the early 90s, uh, we used to go to all the premier road races in the country, right? And one of those premier road races was the, the Peachtree Road Race that takes place every year on the 4th of July. And it's actually the biggest road race in the USA. I think 
60, 60 plus thousand people run that 10K and it's a, it's a unidirectional 10K. And it takes so long to, to get everybody going that in some years the elites are in the final stages of the race before people that started at the same time as them cross the start line. That's how long it takes to get the race going. Anyway, I was lucky enough to have an athlete uh, win that race. Uh, Simon Morolong won that race one year. But we used to stay in this hotel. Uh, I think it was the Niken or the Nico or something like that, but beautiful hotel on the very high floors. And they had the fireworks, the 4th of July fireworks display on the roof of the shopping center below us. So I had that same experience as you, where you, you know, on the 30th floor or something like that, and you're looking down on the fireworks display, which is pretty cool. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an incredible view that way. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Condola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. All right, so this week we're going to talk about a, a fun subject. Again, uh, using, using a power meter, I recommend the, the, the stride power meter, of course. Uh, and we're going to look at the concept of ground contact time. That since the inception of biomechanical studies and research with all these fancy devices with the high-speed cameras, the Vicon systems with pressure plates and so on, it has been determined from sprinting all the way up to high-end marathon running that, that ground contact time is a performance indicator, right? So uh, um, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about. And you realize that obviously, if you run at the velocity that you want to race at repeatedly, obviously you get your ground contact time is going to improve unless there's breakdown, right? Unless there's breakdown. So what is ground contact time, right? It's the period of time measured in milliseconds that your foot is on the ground. So let's say you have a, a cadence of 90. So you take, I mean, a stride rate of 90. So you take 90 strides per minute or 180 steps per minute, right? The amount of time that your foot is on the ground is a tiny amount relative to the time that your foot is in the air. So it's, a, it's the only time that you have ground contact, right? So it's so much different, right, than cycling and swimming. And swimming, you know, for at least half of the cycle, your hand is on resistance. You're creating resistance. You're powering yourself forward, right? And on the bike, probably as well, for the vast majority of the pedal cycle, there's some sort of force on the pedal, whether it's down or whether it's up, right? So that the contact time where you can make a difference to your power output is so much greater than there's in running, right? So all these things like posture and so on come into do so. As you can see, so a, a stride is way less than a second, right? Two-thirds of a second, stuff like that. But a, a typical ground contact time somewhere between 200 and 300 milliseconds. So that's a tiny portion of the whole cycle, right? And a lot of elite athletes, in fact, it's a determinant of how elite they are, or under 200 milliseconds, right? So they, and, you know, you start thinking of things like, okay, um, when I'm running slowly, what goes on with my ground contact time? So obviously that is related. The slower you run, the higher your ground contact time will be. So this is an important thing when looking at mechanical stuff like this, right? Is that you don't look at yourself 
versus normative data. You don't want to go, okay, my, my, my ground contact time is 370 milliseconds, right? So I obviously suck because elites are less than 200, right? But, you know, the elite could be running twice as fast as you are, right? And then you go, okay, how do I improve my number? That's the important thing. So you just always an experiment of one, the, the normative data that you utilize is your own data. You keep coming back to it. All right, when I did an LT1 workout or when I did an LT2 workout or when I went for an easy zone one run or when I went for a zone two run or if I'm doing VO2 max work, what is my ground contact in those periods of time, right? Then you have to look at things like, was I wearing super shoes? What kind of surface was I on? So if you're running on synthetic turf or you're running on grass or you're running on dirt, your ground contact time is going to be longer, right? Because that surface is sticky. So the thing to determine is, are you sticky and can you get less sticky or can you get more springy, right? right? And so you can see how that associates with leg spring stiffness, which we'll talk about in the future. Yeah, I love that term sticky that you have. I think that translates really well in our minds. And one thing I just thinking about as you're talking, people, again, have different foot strikes. And we're not saying that if you're a heel striker that you're going to be on the ground too long. Uh, but again, I think that's the perception. But it's about getting that heel closer under your hip and then rolling through much, much quicker, right? But I again, I, I think... Look, listening to past podcasts of ours where we explain a lot more about what should happen with our foot and ankle complex, et cetera, but also just reminding the listener that we are talking about first probably a six-week process and then 12 weeks and then really that evolution over a period of a couple of years. And in run form, we actually do get the question sometimes is, will I be able to keep doing this program when I finish it. Yes, it's uh, it's a lifetime membership for that reason. We want you to be able to keep doing it and uh, keep working on those patterns. I myself have talked about how I've been a little too sticky. My cadence is a little too low. And this has certainly made a difference with my ground contact time over the three months that I went through run form. But now that I'm going through run form again, I'm noticing even some more micro adjustments, improvements. So that, you know, those progressions, those, those take time. And we'll certainly talk about uh, some of our favorite ways that we work at that today. But I just wanted to point that out, um, perception of, of that. And even with an athlete that comes to mind right now that I was talking to, she was kind of told to run on her toes more. And she, geez, my, I keep getting a calf strain and my Achilles uh, is really tender. And saying, yeah, because you made that transition and trying to just run on your toes, so to speak, which is not really something we advise either. So lots to unpack here, but I just wanted to point that out for people listening. Wow. You know, when you're speaking, I like my mind just goes in seven different directions, right? And I want to touch on all those directions. So a good point there is that you brought up heel striking and midfoot striking, right? So just, just know that when you heel strike, your primary shock attenuation device is your knee and your hip, right? And when you midfoot strike, your primary shock attenuation device is your ankle, right? And your arch. So just people realize that. So when it comes to ground contact time, there are some 
good research articles on the fact that you're probably more efficient as a heel striker. And there's probably two good reasons for that, right? One is, as a, as a heel striker, I mean, I have a good friend who's won the world championships who's a heel striker, right? He's run 208 for the marathon and he's won the world champs, um, Mark Blatches. But if you, put your, if you put your heel down, you just, that's your peak, peak force that you're putting into the ground, right? And that's going up your shin, uh, up your tibia and, and into your knee and then your knee flexion manages that, right? If you land your midfoot, then it's uh, the peak forces go through that fifth met, you know, and then you redistribute going into the arch, right? So the fifth met is quite a uh, quite a bit smaller, right? Uh, but it's also probably a lot more flexible than your knee is, right? So people got to know that, yeah. That fifth met, Bobby, is the the joint uh, with your little toe. I just want to point that out. Oh, yep. People yep. might not realize where what we're talking about there. So you can visualize that we're talking about. The, the the pad of your foot, but the the uh, the little toe, that knuckle under your little toe, that's the fifth mat. Yeah, exactly. So when it, when it comes to ground contact time, you're looking for this the least amount possible across the spectrum of your intensities, considering your footwear, considering the surface that you're running in. But it becomes way more subtle than that, right? So the beautiful thing about being able to measure your ground contact time is you alter somebody's posture and you alter somebody's posture not only through awareness, all right, and actual functional correction, but through the ability to hold on to that posture with conditioning, right, which is, which is your area of expertise. You've done nothing about ground contact time. You've just improved their posture. You've improved their connection. You've improved their kinetic chain. Boom, up goes their, their ground contact time or, or down goes their ground contact time is the right way to say that, right? So the interrelatedness is, I think, what, what uh, folks miss out on sometimes is, okay, so how can my posture improve my ground contact time? Well, think about it, right? If your shin angle is leading backwards, if you're landing on the ground by reaching out in front of you and you landing significantly ahead of your center of mass, right? Obviously, that's a much slower process because there's breaking. So your ground contact time now starts in front of you, shortens up behind you, and that whole process is slowed down. And your ground contact period that you are on the ground is all during a phase of, of inefficiency. There's no help with your momentum. Should you put your foot down closer underneath your center of mass, your foot comes off the ground quicker. That reduces your ground contact time. It reduces your braking, um, and basically, ground contact time is telling you how you are improving on reducing braking effects, which yeah. are again early indications of of mechanical economy and running. Yeah, beautiful. And just I organically sometimes think about what can help people listening. The first thing when I'm talking to a physio about how somebody can either prehab or even rehab is movement improvement, right? It is working on range of motion, which again is why we have that free on our site. People will get started with that. And I, I just, as you were talking, I was thinking about an athlete I used to coach uh, through high school. And then now she's in graduate school and she's talking to me about how some of the issues she's been having. 
And all she started with was movement improvement for the first 10 days. Her revolutions went up six in 10 days. And, you know, where I loosely explained to her that we're just essentially restoring what you had. And now we have more elasticity. She didn't even have to get to the plyometrics yet. And that will help even further. But just pointing that out is so important to really work on your range of motion first. And to me, that's always first and foremost. But I just I just wanted to point that out to people listening. There's a lot that you can do before you even have to think about your stride rate. Yep, yep. I think another thing to look at now that you mentioned that is intra-run ground contact time. If you're running on the same surface at the same speed and your ground contact time is getting longer, right? That's a great indication of how fatigue is causing instability in the hips, uh, lack of rigidity in the knees and the ankles and the arches, and that's creating your your ground contact time, you know, letting that ground contact time go up. But it's also interesting to look at posture. So you talk about, you know, that change in in revs, that's a long-term change, right? But if you, for example, uh, teach somebody how to connect the chest to the pelvis, they're not going to be able to hold on to that, right? So they might have to do do a micro set, which is that sharp exhalation that brings the chest down. But every time they do that set and forget, cadence will run up by 10 and might only last, you know, 20, 30, 40 steps. But they'll instantly see, oh, my posture is hugely playing a role with my cadence. And as a result, my ground contact time. Yeah, 100%. And there's a drill in particular that I think we could give people as a visual. We'll have a link set up with this podcast, but where we work on cross extensor reflex, and that is where essentially we're just setting that knee up right in front of us, and we're just quickly beating gravity down. That that uh, forefoot comes down, and you just kind of setting that position quickly. What happens is the grounded hip will start to get that that extension, and that's supposed to be a reflex it's supposed to be something that is automatic for you and just working on simple things like that can be tremendous just for starting to get the the ability to to uh that neuromuscular re-education i talk about where you're now doing something that's very helpful very positive towards your running gait and it is uh at the same time working on your overall balance etc so simple drill now when you talked about the the posture, that's, I think that is such an important topic that I don't want to just brush past too quickly because I completely agree. I'm always talking to athletes about really paying attention to the strength, especially that will help them hold that posture. And they may actually not be doing enough of that accumulation in that phase and, and then maintaining it. So Establishing that coordination and control is always behind speed. And essentially, that is what we're talking about with getting less sticky, right? So there's a combination of these things that we, of course, introduce into the run form program and, again, graduate you. But it all starts slow, and then it starts to pick up as you get more coordinated and controlled with the movements, right? So, you know, hopefully that gives the listener some some visuals there as well. But just wanted to point out some of these things so that we essentially have that listener understanding that this is a process and it's not just about getting like a metronome and saying, okay, I'm going to just keep up with this, this, uh, you know, this, this sound that I'm hearing. It's not 
to me, that's not the effective way to do it long term. It does take weeks and months. Wow. Again, there's so many things here that when you, when you speak that that is important. Again, we spoke before the podcast about bringing our listeners along, right? We get all enamored with what we're doing with the elites and we're working on these, you know, tiny little margins, right? But there's there's these big margins to be gained. So if you just think about ground contact time, right? Every millisecond that your foot is on the ground, you are putting on the brakes. Let's say you're running 10-minute pace, right? And you are putting your foot down on a stationary surface, right? So you are decelerating. You have to balance yourself, right? You have to overcome two things when you're running. One is inertia and one is gravity, right? So you have to launch yourself forward, but you also have to launch yourself up, right? So you can see if you bend your knees too much or if your hips collapse or if your lumbar spine flexes, you know, all of those things are absorbing force, but they're not storing force as much as you would like them to do that. And so the longer your foot is on the ground, the more in trouble you are, right? So there's this common belief for many, many years is that a lot of what running is, is how quickly you can reset your foot, right? Where you put your foot, obviously, relative to your center of mass is critical, and we've spoken about that, but resetting your foot. And so, uh, you know, I don't want to criticize anybody, but there's a school of thought that says, pick up your foot, just concentrating on picking up your foot, right? But if you pick up your foot, you're falling down on the other foot, right? You're not putting the other foot down. So I like to use the analogy, right? Nowadays, everybody talks about all-wheel drive vehicles. And an all-wheel drive vehicle is a vehicle that's just getting power to all four wheels as opposed to just two of the wheels, right? Um, But a four-wheel drive vehicle, a lot of what's going on there is not just shock absorption, but also returning the wheel down. And that's a good analogy for for a runner, right? If you're in a good all-wheeled, high-end, military-grade all-wheel drive vehicle and you're going over a very deep hole, right, that vehicle is pushing a wheel down into the hole and then that wheel is coming back. So it's loaded. As it goes down, it pushes that wheel down and then comes up the other side. The vehicle stays relatively level. If a four-wheel drive or a normal car goes into a hole, the whole car goes into the hole. So all of that mass goes down and up. So the the analogy to running is it is better to put your foot down before your hips start to drop. And we can speak later about what happens to pelvic oscillation when you do that, right? But to put your foot down before gravity puts you down, right? So if you're reaching forward and then waiting to hit the ground, up goes your ground contact time, backwards leans your shin angle, uh, your braking moment is higher. Now you have to put more force to re-accelerate up to pace again, right? So there's this huge um, oscillation of velocity, all right? And you're trying to lower that down. So if you put your foot down, you're putting it down underneath you. You're putting it down before your hips start to drop. So you're keeping your hips on a plane where you have to, you require less strength to keep it there than what you require to keep lifting it up, right? And so that's what happens when you go back to range of motion. If your butt's back, your pelvis is back, all right? Even if you're putting your foot down really nicely, you're still putting your foot down ahead of your center of mass because your hip flexors are are problematic, right? And you can't get your hips forward, right? And that whole conversation of how do I get my hips forward? Should I fire my glutes? Well, that's a fatal idea, right? (laughs) 
and uh, so so it becomes really interconnected. So every week when we when we have a podcast, I think, you know, actually we should be digressing all the time because what it indicates to our listeners is the complexity and the whole of how we should be viewing this. You can't just fix one thing and fix another thing, you know. And that's a it's you learn that in biomechanics 101, right? Don't fix what's wrong. Look at why it's wrong because it's counteracting something. Go and work on that and this will likely come right on its own. Right. Yeah, and it it reminds me of we've talked about 100 ups before, but when I was yep. growing up and I think you too, right? We're we're doing 100 ups and that is a drill where you're trying to get your knee up high and you're doing it a hundred times. And you look at the athletes doing these drills and you'll end up seeing a C back. You'll end up seeing that, you know, that, that, uh, that torso is rounded forward and that you're visually now trying to get that knee up closer. So you're literally looking at your knee and you're pulling your knee to your chest, but your, your back is now rounded and you're using your psoas, you're using your hip flexors to do all this work. And going into the run program, the run form program, for an example, we look at doing some marches with a band or around your waist and anchored behind you. And so you're able to get into that forward lean and start to really get that position. And then we go into strides. And this is, again, an example about how with that band and that vortex pulling horizontally and behind you, then you're turning on all these postural muscles that need to engage, but you really can't get into, I would say, a bad position. There's still a learning curve for everyone, but the point is that you're able to get into a much better position. Optimally, now you are learning to beat gravity down in these positions because that band is pulling you back your body doesn't want to make mistakes, right? Your brain is automatically starting to register. Well, how do we stay in this position and find our sweet spot? And so that's the beauty of things like that. And finally, I would say uh, I love jump rope as that ability to be able to reduce that ground contact time. But originally, when you see people doing jump rope on day one, the cadence, the number is usually very low. I want them to be able to do 180 skips or more in a minute, which means they have to be nice, uh, stiff springs and there's no breakdown really. And that ground contact time is very, very fast. But normally what you'll see is that people are going to throw their heels back a little bit. They're going to jam their knees, uh, or there's other things up the chain. Like they keep catching the rope and they think, well, it's just I'm not good at jump rope. Well, also, you may be looking at the fact that the rope isn't going clean over and under you because there's asymmetries uh, through your your shoulder to your hip as well, right? So we look at the pogos, again, with the banded dynamics where we're doing, at first, we're doing heel raises, and then we're teaching you to do uh, pogos. And automatically, we see that that athlete is starting to get that efficiency so that's why we start with things like that, um, even before we do jump rope or even before we do other things that are uh, more plyometric in, in, uh, in the second month with the form drills themselves like A-skip. So just wanted to point that out because there's, there's a, a, a sort of a graduation that we do need to look at first before we 
start to do that. And I think that these drills are similar in the sense to we know hill work is speed work in disguise. And to me, that's what a lot of these drills are. They're speed work in, dis in disguise. Yep, yep. And, and manageable speed work in disguise. I want to get back to that whole concept with the, with the high knees. You know, so if somebody's doing that high knee drill, that hundred up kind of drill, and they're trying to get their thighs parallel, you know, even if they dorsiflexed, which would help, all right, um, they'll get fit for sure. They'll get fit, but they'll also get slow, right? Because it's completely the opposite of what we're looking for. And that's why I kind of like drills like switches, right? Because switches mean you have to get your knee up, but then you've got to hold that knee up there, and then you've got to save your momentum by rocketing that foot down, right? And it's all about the down. And that's, so a great example is trying to do a high knee drill with your hands against the wall. You'll notice that you keep drifting away from the wall and what the high knee drill is, is actually pushing those shoulders back and so on uh, and creating that weight in the front, right? So if you go into neutral doing high knees, you'll go backwards. But as soon as it gets into your mind, wait a minute, I've got to keep constant pressure on this wall, then high knees, changes 180 degrees it completely inverts and it becomes about the driving down and people suddenly sense that so you know if you're 90 years old and you're a runner getting up against a wall and just running at a nice smooth cadence and keeping that pressure on your hands constantly against the wall is a perfect illustration you know of that of that kind of uh thing right so you so often see athletes that uh theoretically learnt an exercise like an A-skip or a karaoke or a, or a switch, and you see that all of the emphasis is on getting that knee up quick, and then they kind of, then it's done, right? Then they kind of slowly put their foot down. But it's completely the opposite way around. If you watch these elites doing A-skips and switches, it's up, pow, down. It's really, a, there's a pause, right? There's an up, hold, quick down, because they're learning that motion of changing down. And then the structure remains very integrous, right? And and when you're driving your foot down very, very quickly, your pelvis, your spine, all that support musculature, your QL, your multifidi, everything is now getting ready for that to go down to the ground, right? And then again, if you go a little bit advanced and you're teaching people plyo and so on, you can very quickly see which people are not stiffening just before they hit the ground. They're going bang into the ground and that's where all that dissipation takes place right so it's actually pushing down really really quickly setting up stiffening everything decelerating so then it can load when it hits the ground so there's this huge difference right the classic example is somebody doing say uh, a high knee drill right and 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 running on a surface and they absolutely stomping the ground and as soon as they focus on driving down, they become so quiet, right? So that's the elasticity. So sound plays a huge role in that. Sometimes when, when super shoes first came around, the thing that disturbed me, especially with the, the first two models that came out, right? Uh, uh, they were very loud shoes because there's a, there's a sound that emits from that carbon fiber plate, right? It's a much louder shoe than the old racing flats that were all about softness and cushion, you know, but in a very thin version. So, you know, I had to reset how I listened to how runners ran when they ran in super shoes because the sound had changed completely. Yeah, that's a good point. With uh, the super shoe conversation, I was just thinking back, I did get 
one of those uh, early models. And I know exactly what you're talking about. And I had a rare calf strain that I don't normally deal with, uh, with those super shoes, but they have come a long ways. And um, we've actually have a great episode where we talked to Matt Balzer. If you want to check that episode out about uh, his feelings on super shoes, and we're going to have him back talking a little bit more about that as well. But I, I did learn that there's uh, certainly a difference in how I feel and what I hear with that uh, with that super shoe, and then and then uh, today's version of it uh, that I happened to get through through Ben, and I was lucky enough to just get some good hand me downs that he only wore for like one session, and uh, yeah, <laughs> big difference there. But um, yeah, I you know I think that's important to uh, to recognize the the sound. That's such a good point, Bobby. Yeah. Also, I think it's a good time to to remind folks that. Super shoes are like regular running shoes in as much as certain models suit certain people and certain models don't, right? Uh, and just because there's a limited amount, you know, each company has one. I think some companies have two super shoe models available. But it's important that if a super shoe is for you, that you bear that in mind, right? Because super shoes also alter your mechanics, right? And so they they operate differently depending on your foot strike, depending on your body weight, and depending on your stability, depending on your anomalies, right? Just hearing a, a top coach, top sprint coach saying the other day that every athlete is asymmetrical. Every single athlete is asymmetrical. And, and you know, so yeah, forcing yourself to look for symmetry um, is, you know, you've got to get as symmetrical as you can, but there's reasons for your asymmetry and you don't want to work against those reasons to the point where you're now starting to hurt yourself because you're doing that, right? Yeah, just on that I think I, note too, Bobby, uh, we talked a lot about elites versus, let's just say, age groupers. And we we do train some age groupers that um, people may be surprised they're, they're not anywhere near elite, but they have that performance mindset and we, and we love working with them just as much, right? And looking at their uh, asymmetries, I'm happy when we get them within 5%, certainly, when it comes to something like the 12-hop test, and within 10% when it comes to uh, strength tests like a lateral uh, leg lift, okay? But with elites, the the main difference is that we're looking for less than 3% on the 12-hop test, for example, and getting it as close to symmetry as possible, but it's uh, it's it never really is the goal to be completely symmetrical uh, because I don't think that that is uh, the way our body is is the kinematics actually work. So that's a good point to bring that up too. Is we shouldn't be chasing that that uh, complete zeroed out equal symmetry. That's that's not really realistic. Yep, yep. I can't remember exactly what the numbers were, but I was just reading yesterday that. To learn a movement takes, I think, 3,000 to 5,000 repetitions. But to correct an incorrect movement can take 30,000 to 50,000 repetitions to, to, to relearn it, right? So it's, uh, it, it, it goes back to that point like, okay, I get run form, what happens in 12 weeks, right? So in 12 weeks, you learn to do, for example, all the dynamic mobility drills, right? And they're, they're more than that, but you learn to do those, right? My athletes, three times a week, they do all the dynamic mobility drills three times a week, right? So you're thinking, okay, just like anything, you do something rote, you do something rote, you do something rote, and then 
in three months, you check in and you go, oh, wow, I've been doing this component wrong. So you keep having to refer back, right? And, and, and that's why athletes pay money to work with us because they need the eyes on. It's not just the movement. It's the correct execution of the movement. It's the correct learning of the, of the movement. So I, you know, I think that typically when people, you know, buy a program or something like that, they go, okay, I'm paying for 12 weeks and I'm paying this coach for 12 weeks and then I will be fixed and good for life, you know, but it's, it's a, it's a lifelong process, right? It's a lifelong process. I just, every now and again, I'll whip out the camera with an athlete and I'll take a video and then, you know, I'll be coaching and then I'll go home and I'll look at the video and I'll go, I can't believe that's the same athlete because you see them every day. It's like a tree growing, right? It just, okay, the tree is now 20 foot high. But when you go and look at video and you go, wow, I got video where this tree was 10 foot high and it's a completely different thing, right? So, uh, yeah, that, that's important. And I know a lot of people don't even actually like to look at video of them running, but you just got to get objective and say, okay, I've got better. I'm smoother. I've improved. Not only have my performances improved, but I recover quicker, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And I just want to bring up the, you have habit, right? And that's either your best friend or your worst enemy, right? So I, and I, I think with just my own example here, having run form as a product for a little while, I had a little bit of guilt because you and I get so busy. And before I knew it, I thought to myself, am I really doing or practicing what I preach enough? And that was before the winter. And I've mentioned I was, I really went through the program all in for three months. And the main thing I had to establish was I get up in the morning and I do my protocol and I just keep repeating that first thing. Now, sometimes that means that I'm going to be able to run just after that. Sometimes I have a podcast like this one, right? And, but I've got, I have my protocol done. And that again is the most important thing because I get a lot of questions, customer service. When is the best time for me to do these drills? And uh, my answer back is always starts with consistency is the most important thing. So to be able to get those repetitions in, again, that's a brilliant point, Bobby, is I would even go to, well, I think you said 30,000 repetitions for, yeah, it's really ingrained and cemented a habit that really is rust that we need to shake off, like you say. And that's something that I think we do have to be very patient with. And I mentioned before or earlier in the podcast with a younger runner that I worked with in high school, that happened a lot quicker for her because it hasn't really been uh, a lot of years of her cementing a different pattern down. It's just been more about her being distracted as a student in the best way possible, but still distracted as a student. So she was able to restore that a little bit quicker. Um, but with somebody like myself, three months, it would just started to show some real improvement. And now I have another three months where I'm trying to get a little bit more. So, you know, just pointing out the first thing is make it consistent. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, as an endurance athlete, you, you know, you're not like a golfer, right? So as an endurance athlete, you're going out the door for a 30 minute run and you have a cadence of 180, that's 54, 5,400 steps that you've taken just in 30 minutes. So you've got plenty of opportunity to habituate. You just have to check in. The more fatigued you are, the more often you need to check in. But just keep checking in, cue things up, 
you know, do those little assessments uh, as you go along the way. You know, and again, back to what I what I mentioned last time is is that in the beginning, just feel smooth, and then feel you know smooth, smooth and easy mood words, right? Relax, strong, um, capable, fit, excited, enjoying, all those sort of things. But when you start to fall apart a bit, struggle a little bit, and you start focusing on the discomfort, that's a good time to check in on your on your form cues and stuff like that. <laughs> I can't add to that. It's perfection. What am I going to say? It was. It's great. I love it. <laughs> all right. Um, guys, uh, again, uh, thank you so much for, for checking in with us. Uh, that, that was the, the skinny on ground contact time and uh, why it's worthwhile knowing what your ground contact time is and why you should be working on that and then looking at various little exercises that are, that are capable of, of helping you with that ground contact time. Uh, Matt and I, on the very early stages, uh, we're speaking to a, a, a sports science grad. We're in the very early stages of of looking at those specific individual areas that make up running mechanics and and how run form work can can improve those directly in in a measured kind of format, right? Uh, you know, we know we've got a lot of results. We know the athletes are doing well, uh, but at the same time, you know, you want to get some more data behind that. There are some interesting scientific papers out there at the moment that are speaking directly to improvement of mechanics is a far more performance oriented conversation than we initially thought it's not just about injury prevention it's definitely about performance yeah so thanks so much everybody and thank you matt great talking to you again man thank you bobby uh wonderful conversation i think as you were talking my closing thoughts did come in and i just thought okay well first of all when it comes to the progressions that we have in run form, we talk about that being able to graduate towards a more visceral response. And, and that is what we truly look at for having a sustainable system for you. There are other episodes. We're going to talk more about how we can really start to get even stronger in these positions and then be able to apply the proper plyometrics. And that's a really fun conversation to have. Uh, but I urge everyone to start with what I consider to be the fundamentals, the basics. So uh, we talk a lot about the differences between age groupers and elites. And I want people to understand that the performance mindset is the person that we're talking to here. And these programs, they have helped the Ben Knuts of the world, and they also have uh, have helped out the age groupers and they've helped people go from just running in pain to be able to run the trails with their dog without pain. So these are the basics that work and the fundamentals that are true for everybody. As long as you have a performance mindset, in other words, you're willing to be patient and do the work, then this will work. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, 
Don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was that was awesome. Yeah.